0: A reading from Syroch. The beginning of human pride is to forsake the Lord. The heart has withdrawn from its maker. For the beginning of pride is sin, and the one who clings to it pours out abominations. Therefore, the Lord brings upon them unheard of calamities and destroys them completely. The Lord overthrows the thrones of rulers and enthrones the lowly in their place. The Lord plucks up the roots of the nations and plants the humble in their place. The Lord lays waste the lands of the nations and destroys them to the foundations of the earth. He removes some of them and destroys them and erases the memory of them from the earth. Pride was not created for human beings or violent anger for those born of women. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. So here we are
1: in the waning days of summer. Most of our kids are back in school, and slowly the flock begins to grow again. It warms a rector's heart, you know. It warms a rector's heart. Speaking of things that warm my heart, this is one of my favorite colics in all of the church here, and it's worth a second look. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name. Increase in us true religion. Nourish us with all goodness. Bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Increase in us true religion. It's hard not to imagine many of our neighbors, particularly here in Marin, asking why would you want to increase religion at all, let alone true religion? And is there such a thing? Religion is kind of a dirty word in the wider culture. Most people don't want to admit that they're religious. And oftentimes, even amongst ourselves in a Christian community that remains faithful to worship, we look kind of sideways at people who make claims to religiosity. Probably because we know in ourselves, if no one else, that kind of false religiosity, that false religion that puts on airs and pretensions of piety or even that precious kind, you know, that falsifies humility and pretends to be modest when it really isn't all that modest. We know false religion, and maybe that's what our greater culture is wisely somewhat cynical about. Because you see, this collect was not written in 1979 when the Book of Common Prayer in its present form was put to paper. In fact, it wasn't written in 1928 either. You have to go back all the way to the 8th century to find the origins of this collect. And it was Thomas Cramner himself, the architect of the Book of Common Prayer back in the 16th century, who put that word true in front of religion, probably looking at what was going on in the Reformation around him and wondering which religion is true, but more than that, out of a recognition, a deep and profound recognition, that a lot of religiosity around us all the time, inside and outside the church, can seem false, shallow, superficial, Our readings today get to the heart of that point, and they are filled with wisdom teachings. The wisdom literature is a big chunk of our ancient scriptures, and it goes back to the practical advice that was probably passed on from family to family, from generation to generation, from father to son and mother to daughter, in the oral tradition for Generations that were countless in ancient times. Sebastian, if I can put him on the spot for a minute, beautifully read that passage from Sirach, which appears in our Apocrypha. As I said to Annette after his reading, I said, Sirach has spoken. Because that's how it felt, right? That sort of weighty wisdom that you feel has behind it the great gravitas of years, and all of that human experience. A sense in which pride is very close to the root of all human folly. Sirach understood that. A lot of the wisdom literature does. And we often fall into that pit of pride in our daily walks. It is what Jesus points out as hypocrisy in many instances. It is that sense in which we can put on airs and get away with it that somehow, by faking it, we will be right with God. The letter to the Hebrews written in the first century is similarly steeped in that wisdom tradition and is giving practical advice to a faithful Jewish Christian community struggling with their identity and who they are And what historians tell us is that this advice to that early Christian community is something that made Christian communities from very early times distinctive from all other communities, especially those in the Mediterranean world of the first century. It was a community rooted in service and acts of loving kindness. It's hard for us to imagine, but it apparently is true that the Christians were the only people in that world who were willing to reach out to the disenfranchised and the poor and the marginalized. Those are the very edges of society who had been forgotten by the empire, who had been forgotten by their indigenous traditions, who were neglected by the powers that be at every level of their society. It was the Christians who first reached out to them. And if Christians were known for anything at all in those early days, it was for that. Reaching out to the disenfranchised, the marginalized, those who sat at the lowest seat, if they were invited at all, To the banquets of power and honor. Jesus himself picks up that wisdom tradition in today's reading from Luke. And he is speaking to a group of people, and particularly a host at this great feast, a leading Pharisee of the tradition of the time, someone who knew and was steeped in the wisdom tradition and who knew its practice and practical application intimately. Jesus is speaking to him and also speaking to us. Now, what a number of scholars talk about when they talk about Jesus' wisdom teachings is they don't talk about Jesus as a conventional wisdom teacher. Jesus is not a carrier of conventional wisdom. Rather, he is a carrier of alternative wisdom or subversive wisdom, if you will. But he starts out with a game that everybody likes to play, right? If I put myself in a humble position and I get raised up, it's going to look pretty good. And in Jesus' world, that was all the more important because it was a, there was a constant exchange going on of honor and shame and in Jesus' society, honor and shame were right there next to life and death. They were an extra really intertwined. You couldn't separate the two. And so you can hear Jesus' host following him into this wisdom teaching, which might have come out of the book of Proverbs or maybe Sirach or any number of other books of wisdom literature that would have been circulating at the time. And you can hear the host saying, Sure, I can play this game all day. I can play humble, can't you? I can play modest, can't you? And that's a way I can advance my position because people will look at me and say, Oh, how humble he is, right? Oh, how humble he is. We all know what it's like when we encounter somebody or we encounter ourselves. Claiming humility. When anyone starts to claim their own humility, I begin to wonder. One of the things that really grates on me these days is when people say, I am so humbled to receive this honor. I want to take them aside and say, no, you are honored, (laughs) not humbled. That's another sermon for another time. But you can sense a way in which the host could follow Jesus into the depths of this game and say, yeah, right on, Jesus. But then, you see, Jesus goes on. Jesus goes on. And he challenges the host to consider inviting people who have no honor, no reputation, nothing into the meal, because they can give nothing in return. There will be no status for the host in that. And that probably, for at least the conventional mindset in Jesus' culture, was a bridge too far. But we sometimes like to talk about Jesus' culture as though it were other, right? We don't have honor and shame problems in our own culture. Well, actually we do. We just don't talk about it all that much. And if you want to look not too hard, look no farther than this, think about all the ways we structure our lives to look successful. Whether it's our resumes, whether it's our business prowess, whether it's what kind of accolades this parish gets in the wider community, we're all very good at this game. It's a very ancient game. It's part of, you might say, the human condition. Catholic theologian James Allison talks about this in reflecting on René Girard's mimetic theory. Girard's basic premise is that One of the very foundational pieces of human behavior is that we imitate. We are always looking for someone to imitate. That's mimetic theory, mimicry. We are always imitating someone. And Girard doesn't say that's necessarily a bad thing, but the question comes to mind, who are we imitating? The author of the letter to the Hebrews notes this when he says, imitate people of faith. You're going to imitate someone, you might as well imitate someone good, right? In Jesus' society, of course, and the host at the table would know who he was supposed to imitate and impress. But James Allison points out that the word used in this passage is the ancient Greek word doxa, from which we derive the root of our word doxology. You know that word? We often translate that into English as glory. In this particular passage, the translators decided to translate it as honor. But Allison points out that often the word doxa in the ancient Greek is really referring to something as prosaic and ordinary as reputation. Reputation. we're always out for our reputation in somebody's eyes. That's part of our habit of looking for someone to imitate, and often we're looking for someone to imitate who has a good reputation in the eyes of others. And this is where Jesus gets really subversive, because he says, put that game aside, go and sit in that back seat, not so you can be raised up, but that's because that's where God is. At the heart of our tradition is a Savior who freely takes the road to the cross and on Golgotha sets aside all reputation, is completely dismembered, of all good reputation is shamed into essentially non-existence. Jesus says, you are not to imitate the people who are always clamoring after reputation, but you are to imitate God, who is seated at the back, who is seated in the lowest chair, who is among the marginalized the poor, the outcast, the forgotten, the nameless ones, the ones with no reputation whatsoever. Sometimes in the secular climate in which we live, what would it be like to imagine a God who has a bad reputation? Or no reputation whatsoever? A religion that is on the out. A religion that doesn't matter to the wider world. This is Jesus subverting us, calling us to that place. But as Allison points out, that's where God is on the edge close to death in the eyes of the wider society, with a doxa that means nothing to most people. But if we follow Jesus there, as he reminds his host, we follow him on that journey to Golgotha. But it's also a journey beyond that, Because it's not just a game of reputations anymore, but the game of life. We are called not to imitate one another or the successful, but to imitate God. And in doing so, to find renewal, resurrection, and a world made anew. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at at our saviormv.org that's o u r s a v i o u r mv for mill valley dot O-R-G. we wish you god's peace and we hope to greet you in person very soon